can only imagine. This morning I'm going to ask that you open the scripture with me to Ephesians, the fourth chapter. As you're turning there so that I do not forget, uh, tomorrow at 6.30 is our outreach team meeting. Uh, Our injured leader, Carol, will be there to to lead the meeting, but if you want to participate in uh, planning and doing outreach for the community of faith here and into the surrounding community, come and join us and be a part of that again tomorrow night at 6.30. Well, we're in this series today uh, called Fixer Upper, and by now you know that we're not talking about fixing up houses. We're talking about fixing up relationships, because relationships over time need a little TLC, a little bit of attention. They deteriorate, and we've got to keep building into them. And today I want to talk to you about the theme or the format of an open concept. Now, I have watched enough HGTV that I know what an open concept is and what an open concept home is like. Somebody goes in and they start demoing walls and they start knocking out doors and and frames to create an open concept floor plan so that the uh, kitchen and the family room, maybe a living room and a dining room, they, they all open up together uh, to create flow. According to these shows, you gotta have some flow going on through your house in these rooms, and uh, you end up with really a great room with some unobstructed sight lines through the house. Now what I've learned about relationships is that just as oxygen is to the body, just as fertilizer is to a garden or a flower bed, Uh, Just as Chip and Joanna Gaines are to shiplap is communication to relationships. And like great rooms, great relationships require open communication, where walls are knocked down, doors are open, frames are moved. And yet studies indicate that for most couples, you only engage in about four minutes a day of meaningful communication. And that's simply not enough. Sometimes I think we forget, uh, even as believers, the power of our words. Proverbs 18.21 says, The tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat its fruit. I mean, think about how powerful the tongue is. With our words, we can bring life to a relationship, or with our words, we can bring death to a relationship. Words are powerful. One of my favorite illustrations is of the couple they're out driving together one day, and, and they, they were just being snarky with each other. They were saying nasty and hurtful things to each other, just going at it. And they're driving through an agricultural area and drive by a field that is full of a bunch of pigs and cows in the pasture. And, and the husband smugly turns to his wife and says, look, dear, there's some of your relatives out there. And without missing a beat, she said, yes, in-laws. Uh, Guys, don't ever get into a war of words with your wives, okay? You're, you're going to lose every time. Uh, words that tear down can bring death, but words that build up bring life. Now, what I want to do today is something that, that I've been praying is very helpful to you. I want to open up one of the best chapters I know of in Scripture when it comes to that open plan uh, of communication. It's Ephesians chapter 4 and, and what happens there. And I know what happens as a congregation. We come and we listen to a sermon, but, but when we leave here about five minutes after you walk out of the door and you hit your car in the parking lot, you're going to forget about 95% of the things that I've said from the pulpit this morning. But what I want to challenge you to do, the next time you get into a communication breakdown, whether it's in your family, 
at work, at school with your friends, and you don't know what to do, and you can't remember all that we talked about in this sermon, all you've got to remember is Ephesians chapter 4. Okay? You say, I, I am stuck in this relationship. I don't know where it's going. I don't know where it's heading. I don't know where to turn. Turn to Ephesians 4. While things are getting pretty heated between my spouse and I right now, uh, what do I do? Ephesians chapter 4. Okay? It talks about the power of words and how we can improve communication. And we're going to read this, and then we're going to come back and unpack some practical lessons I think God gives us from there. So I want you to follow along with me in Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, the Apostle Paul is the author. And we're going to start in verse 2. Okay, Verses 2 and 3 say, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now I want you to jump down to verse 25 with me. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Verse 29, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that I may benefit those who listen. Now verse 31, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Can you imagine how much better our relationships would be if we practiced those words right there? So what do we learn in these verses about improving communication? I want to give you five very practical tools today things that you can use and touch on from these verses. The very first one that we saw is patience. Verse 2 said, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. When you really love people, you're patient with them. You want your kids to know that you love them. You want your husband, your wife. You want your grandkids, your great-grandkids. You want your colleagues at work to know that you care about them, that you love them. You're patient with them. The word for patient here in the original Koine Greek, it's, it's a very interesting word. It literally means taking a long time to boil. Now, we talk about somebody that has a short fuse. That's exactly the opposite. What we're talking about here is someone for whom it takes a lot to get them stirred up. It takes a long time to boil. Now, there's a couple of things. There's two things that we forget about people. And when we forget these things then we forget to be patient with others. The first is this, people are more important than our time. People are more important than our time. Most of us are suffering from what the malady of our times that has been called hurried sickness. We're in a hurry. You know, think about how many times in a day we text. We stop at a red light, we're texting enough that the light changes and the people behind us have to honk to get us going. We may be sitting in a drive-thru and we're checking email on our phones as well. And I've seen some of you ladies at stoplights, you turn down the visor and you're putting on your makeup. I've seen guys, you know, with the Egg McMuffin in one hand, the coffee in the other, and, you know, they're steering with their elbows as they go, all because we're, we're great at multitasking, aren't we? But think about what it costs us. Many years ago, uh, not long after moving to Chicago, into a fairly high-pressured ministry. 
It was John Ortberg that asked his mentor, Dallas Willard, he said, what do I need to stay spiritually alive and healthy? There was a long pause, and Dallas Willard said to him, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And, and John wrote that down. He said, okay, I got that. What else? And there was another pause, and, and, and Will, Willard said, well, well, there is nothing else. You see, hurry is the spiritual enemy of the spiritual life. It can destroy souls. Hurry can keep us from living well. As we pursue spiritual life, we've got to do battle with hurry. Because for most of us, the greatest danger isn't that one day we're going to wake up and renounce our faith. It's just that we're going to become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we settle for a mediocre version of what faith really could be in Jesus Christ. It prevents us from a depth of spirituality, and we just kind of skim life instead of actually living it as the gift that God intends it to be. Marty Friedman defines hurry sickness as, above all, it's this continuous struggle, an unremitting attempt to accomplish more and more, to participate in more and more events in less time, frequently in the face of opposition, real or imagined, to please other persons. So we need to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from our lives. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to be busy at times. As you look at the ministry of Jesus, you know that Jesus had a lot to do. Look at all the ministry he packed into three years of his life. But he never did it in such a way that it severed the relationship, the communication with his heavenly father. He never did it in such a way that it hindered his ability to love when love was called for. He never did it in such a way that people were treated as an interruption. He was often busy, but not hurried, because love and hurry simply are incompatible. 1 Corinthians 13, the Bob read, talked about it. What is, what is love? Love is patient. And when people become, or when time becomes more important than people in our lives, we become impatient and relationships suffer. We forget that people are more important than our time, but sometimes we also forget that people are more important than things. When things become more important than people in our lives, conflicts rise because our interests are divided between people and stuff. Think about it this way. You always want your kids to enjoy home. You want them to be in your kitchen, and you want them to be baking cookies in your kitchen, but you know the cost is chocolate and flour and sugar and little fingerprints that are going to destroy that, that perfect kitchen counter and walls. You want to be able to say to your neighbor or to your brother-in-law, yeah, just go out to the garage, borrow whatever tool you need. You know, go ahead and borrow the lawnmower, but you know it's going to be 27 months and 107 hints until it comes back to your garage. And so we get impatient because stuff has a way of detracting us from the people in our lives. We all have this conflict between people and things. And you say, Bill, I, I get that. But you don't know some of the people I encounter in my life. You don't know how hard it is to be with some of the people I'm forced to be with. How difficult they can be. How challenging they can be. How unkind they can be. Well, maybe this verse will help you from Proverbs. 
Proverbs 14, 29. I want you to notice this. Whoever is patient has great understanding. I like that. But one who's quick-tempered displays folly. How do you develop greater patience? You seek a greater understanding of people. Friends, you look closely at people and you will find that there's a wound in all people in some way. Difficult people in this world and in your experience, they weren't just born that way. Something happened to them somewhere along the line that caused a wound within them. So if you grew up with a parent who was devoid of showing emotion, devoid of expressing feelings, and and that, that frustrated you with how stern they could be at times, if you were able to look closely and understand the homes from which they came, if you were to know their parents or to realize what it was like growing up with their brothers and sisters, maybe it would help you to understand what shaped them to be the people they are, and you'd be a little more patient with one another. Maybe it's the boss who's so critical, who is so demanding to work with, who tests your patience every day, and perhaps they're living with the wound and the fear of failure. Maybe that teacher that that never understands your point of view and why all the students in her class are, are failing. Maybe if you could see things from her point of view, you'd realize that maybe she's living with insecurity, that she was never able to to please her family growing up. And now she's driven to an unhealthy level of work just to prove her sense of worth. And it doesn't excuse the way that she treats you, but it helps you to understand. Maybe the wife who constantly nags, 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 nags. Maybe she's just had it up to here with a full-time career and chauffeuring kids to doctors and soccer practices and after-school events and and doing all the things she does to hold the family together without ever hearing a word of appreciation. There's no blessings. There's no thank yous until Mother's Day rolls around. And if you understand that, you can become more patient. You see, patient people have great understanding, and it builds that open concept, which brings me to number two. And number two is affirmation. Another word for this is is simply encouragement. Every word that comes out of your mouth, it's either building somebody up or it's tearing them down. There are no neutral words. Do you realize that? Ephesians 4.29 said what? Don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for, and I want you to say this out loud with me together, building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. That's the only kind of words that ought to be coming out of our mouth. Tell people that, that you live with. Tell people that work alongside you. I mean, let them know, hey, you're doing a great job. I saw how you responded in that situation. Way to go. Tell your husband you're proud of him. Tell him you respect him and he's doing a great job of being a man. Tell your wife that that you love her, that you actually need her in your life, that you can't imagine yourself with anyone else. To your kids, to your spouse, learn to really become a good texter. Shoot them the unexpected texts that say, I am so thankful for you. I'm so glad God blessed my life with you. Tell your kids, you're a young man of God. 
I can't wait to see what God's going to do in your life. Tell your daughter, you're a glorious young woman of God. Next to your mother, you're the most beautiful girl in the world. Tell your kids that. I'm feeling this. When you speak life-giving words into all your relationships, that's the challenge. Speak life-giving words. When you build others up, it's amazing how powerful it is. Now, I just want to say something to those of you here this morning that view your life in God's hand as a change maker. Maybe you work with the senior saints in this fellowship. Maybe you work with youth. Maybe you work with children. Never, ever underestimate the power of your words of affirmation in the life of the next generation or in the life of the greatest generation, to use Brokaw's words. If you wonder, Bill, how can I really serve at the Springfield Church of Christ? You could make so big a difference in the lives of kids and youth and by serving the senior saints. Those times of fellowship for senior adults is such a life-affirming time, and it's so appreciated. Do we need you to help set up chairs and cut out crafts? Yes, but more than that, I need you to do what, what my Sunday school teachers did for me and what my youth leaders built into me growing up, that you as adults can grab some of the kids in this church in a good way, <laughs> that you can look them in the eye, that you can speak words of affirmation into their soul and add value into them because God knows what they're hearing at home. And even if they're getting positive things at home, Think of all the garbage that they're hearing in this world from everyone else, from, from school and from the media and their own conscience sometime. If you're in the foyer after church, grab a young person and, and ask them how they are. Ask them what special thing happened in your life this week. And if they open up and as they open up to you, they may tell you things they've never told anybody else. But you can look at them and say, I believe in you. I see Christ at work in you. Young people, when's the last time you embraced one of the seniors in this church? And you look them in the eye and you say, what has God done in your life this week? Tell me what lesson God is working out in your life. Let them know that you're expecting great things from them in days to come. Let them know they're appreciated, that they're wanted, that they're needed here. Let them know, would you be my next grandpa? Would you be my adopted grandmother? Listen, as your minister this morning, I'm giving you full permission, okay, to build one another up, to speak words of life and affirmation because that's what we need. I don't want a senior, I don't want a young person walking out of the doors of this church without having their chest puffed up knowing that God loves them and we love them as well. Don't let any unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but only what's useful for building one another up according to their needs. But that's not the end of the verse, is it? The verse went on to say that it may benefit those who, what? Listen. That's number three. Listen. When you seek to understand before you seek to be understood, you're hearing what's actually being said, and relationships flourish, and you learn the art of listening. This past week, we had a, a memorial service for a, what can honestly be said is a quiet man of God for Jim Kitchen. You know, the book that, that of which he's a namesake, James chapter 1, verse 19, I think it spoke well of his life, and it should speak well of us. 
James 1.19 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. I don't know if you like the, the comedian Jeff Foxworthy. Uh, one time he related this, though. He said, I used to think when my wife said, let's talk, it meant we need to talk. He said, after years of marriage, I finally learned that let's talk does not mean we need to talk. It means I need to talk, you need to listen. He said, when she says, let's talk, I respond exactly the same way I do when I get pulled over by the police. I look straight ahead, I give short yes and no answers, and I just want to find out what I'm being accused of. <laughs> and by the way, I wanted to give you this little advice, because you probably looked down the outline and you thought, okay, I want to hear what this guy says, are the four most romantic words in the world. Okay, guys, I want you to take out a pen and write these down. Women will melt at these words if you say them, okay? The four most romantic words in the world can be, and then what happened? Okay? Ladies, I'm helping you out on this, okay? Many of you have never heard those words spoken from a guy, am I right? They've never asked you, but I'm telling you, guys, she likes if you can say that, and I want you to get ready for what you're going to hear. You know, Cheryl is always shocked when I ask for more information instead of less. But the four most romantic words that a guy can give, now there's exceptions to this, but you guys know the numbers. On the average, most women speak about 30,000 words a day. The average man, and I know these are averages, the average man speaks only 15,000. By the time a man comes home from work, he's used 14,999 words. He's got one left, and then only all he's got left are grunts after that. Most women save up 30,000 for the end of the day when she is home, and she's ready to share those with the guy. And what our wives need and what people need in our lives, they just need 15 to 20 minutes where we just listen, where we just hear what's on their heart as a time of, of reconnection. It's a time to share. See, we need to learn the wisdom of Proverbs 17:28. It says, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongues. Lots of folks in Washington would benefit from hearing that proverb. I mean, don't you just love the Bible? I can actually tweet that one out. Uh, keep silent, seem intelligent, right? Um, it'll help you if you just sit back and listen. One of the things I miss uh, in, in, in our relationship is Thursdays used to be Cheryl and my mutual day off. Now, with her position now, she doesn't get Thursdays off, but we used to take that as our date day. You know, maybe we'd sleep in late, but we'd go out to eat brunch at Bob Evans, and I'll remember the days, every time we'd go, Jerry and Pat Rimley would be sitting there, you know, sharing breakfast together. But we would go, and, and we would just talk. We'd take a walk with each other, and, and there's two things I find build a lot of security into our relationship. And one is if we know each other's schedule. So I would take my calendar, she'd take her calendar. We'd say, you know, what are you doing this week, next week, what am I doing? So that you never have that conversation of, you never told me, when did you plan this? Why are we doing this? And we'd get on the same page. The other thing that provides security is knowing what we're doing financially. One of the things that just astounds me as a minister are the number of people now that have separate accounts. Husband has his account, wife has her account and they never understand where the finances are shared together. 
Used to be you got married, it all went into one pot, right? And, and that's how you dealt with it. It causes so many issues, I find, today when things are separate and it's my money versus your money. But one of the things that provides security in a relationship is just discussing, communicating financially what's going on. I was blessed to marry a, a young woman whose parents raised her with a proper view of finances. She grew up understanding the value of a dollar. When she had a car, she, she paid for her car. When she got insurance, she paid for insurance. There were times in school, you know, all of her friends are going out to eat at La Rosa's and, and, and Skyline and stuff. She's hopping in the car with her friend to go to Zantigo's, a little restaurant, and paying, I don't know, like 59 cents to 99 cents for a burrito, a chili cheese burrito. That's all she could afford. So she has a proper view and understanding of, of financially what we need to do. And I need to hear that. And she and I, when we're on the same page, we do so much better. And if we want to have that open concept, that open communication in our relationship, that's what we need. Number four, number four, and I pray <laughs> in the ministry for 29 years now, I pray that I don't have to mention this to believers in Christ, but I've done enough marriage counseling that I know I have to. Number four, abolish destructive language. There are some language, guys, that just needs to be out of bounds for believers in Christ and our relationships. There are some labels that should never come out of your mouth. There are some terms that should never be used because words, labels, have the power of life and death. Ephesians 4.31, did you see how those words began? Get rid of. It doesn't say limit their use. It doesn't say reserve them for the worst of arguments. It says get rid of it. There are some things that need to be beyond and out of bounds in thriving relationships. Think about the last family fight that you had. Maybe it was a big relational blow up. Uh, maybe it was, it was last week, last month, last year. Maybe it was on the way to church this morning. I mean, isn't it amazing sometimes how you get in fights getting ready for church? Because, you know, you're, you're trying to work schedules out. You've got kids to get ready. Dad's usually out in the car anxiously waiting. Kids are scrambling. Where's my Bible? One's looking for their shoes. One's still looking for their clothes. You know, can we get something to eat on the way? And there's so much stress that sometimes your biggest fights happen on the way to church. Cheryl and I solved that years ago. We just drive separate cars. We come separately to church. Uh, but maybe you can't do that. But think about that in your last fight. What was it like? What was the, the volume like in that conversation? How loud did you speak? What zingers did you give? What, what low blows? What buttons did you push? And we all know how to push buttons, don't we? We do. What verbal missiles did you fire? And some of you say, well, I would never talk like that, Bill. <laughs> well, maybe you don't use those words or labels. Maybe you've disguised your destructive language with psychobabble. You see, what I've also found is that some of you have watched enough Dr. Phil or have you watched enough books or read enough books that, that when you get in a conversation, you'll throw things out like, you're just being so anal retentive right now. Or this is just class book depression and recession without expression and concealed adolescent regression. I like rhyming those words. I, I'm not going to feed your codependency anymore. Grow up. Oh, I'm just so sick of how passive aggressive you can be at times. You know what you are? You're just narcissistic. What you need is some Abilify and some Zoloft and Prozac and you'll be just fine. Can I tell you something about those verbal missiles like that? 
they don't work. <laughs> they don't. I've talked to hundreds of men and women and hundreds of sons and daughters over the years, and never once did somebody come up to me and say, Bill, you know what? When I just zing that verbal missile, when I just told him where to go, when I just looked over at her and said, you're an enabler, you're just like your mother, things just got so much better in our marriage. Never have I heard that. And rather than, than verbally venting bitterness and rage and frustration and slander and every form of malice, the Bible says, throw it out. Get rid of it. In fact, it tells us to do the exact opposite. Proverbs 29, 11 says, fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise will bring calm in the end. And I realize that that's so counterintuitive to so many of us because we feel so much better when we can ventilate, when I give full vent to our anger. And psychology, it hasn't been very helpful because years ago, somebody came up with the idea that if you got something bugging you, you just got to get it off your chest so you feel better. So if you need to scream, you scream. If you need to yell, you yell. If you need to punch something, punch a pillow. If you need to hit something or throw something, then do it because you can't keep it inside. You can't deal with it any other way. Just express it. And now when you think about it, how many other emotions do we treat that way? Nothing. Nobody has ever said, you know what? I have been holding back on joy for years. All those times that people tell me funny stories and I've been repressing my laughter and you better watch out because I'm getting ready just to spew joy and laughter all over everybody. It never happens that way. What research is showing though is that verbal affirmation or, or ventilation, it's fun. And the more you verbally vent, the more you become edified in it personally that you're going to do it again. In fact, let me illustrate it this way. In a, in a minute, I want, to, I want you to do something for me, okay? I'm going to say the word yes. And I want you to say back to me, no. But I don't just want to say, I want you to shout it back to me. In fact, I want you to dive deep into that river of anger that's inside of you. And I want you, maybe you'll shake your fist at me and you're going to say, no, okay? So every time I say yes, you're going to say, no. all right, you ready? Yes. No. I said yes. No. I said yes. No. You can stop now. No. Ah, see? It's a pretty scary sight to see you guys do that, you know? Some of you had no trouble getting in touch with your river of rage. Uh, but it feels good, doesn't it? It felt kind of fun to do that. You know, the more you do that, the easier it is to face that. Another discovery about all that ventilation therapy is, uh, and it's going to surprise some of you, nobody likes being ventilated on. Nobody, it, it, it's always great for the ventilator, not so great for the ventilatee. And it's tough. And so the Bible says, don't do it. In fact, Ephesians 4.26, in your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry and don't give the devil a foothold. Now again, I wish I didn't have to say this, what I'm about to say. But when I don't, I'm always regretful in the churches that I've served. I have a brief word to say to you in relationships and it's moved beyond uh, verbal rage and anger and brawling in some respects to being physical. And if some of you have had this in your past, you'll understand where I'm coming for because 
you kind of have that lump in your throat right now when you think about what happened years ago. And I pray that, that this connects with you. If you're living in a, a physically violent relationship, if you're with an unstable person, I want to urge you to do what King David did in the Old Testament when King Saul came after him with a spear. David, David looked at that, realized he didn't have much of a future as a javelin catcher. And, and so you know what he did? He ran. And he ran fast. And frankly, that's what some of you need to do. If you're in a relationship where it has become physical, you don't need to learn to live with it. You don't need to learn to deal with it in the place of that physically abusive person. You need to leave indefinitely, or at least until that person changes and seeks help. You may need to remove yourself permanently at some point, but friends, God created none of us to be punching bags. You're a creation of the Most High God. You were created in His image. His Son hung on a cross outside of Jerusalem to show you what your life was worth. You are a son of the God of all. You are a daughter of the King of Kings. And if you need to tell someone or anyone on this team in this church, Elder Deacon, we're here to help. Great relationships. They need great communication. Here's the last word. If you're going to have an open concept, because you're not always going to get this right, I'm not always going to get this right. And so we're going to need, number five, to forgive. We have to forgive. Excuse me. <coughs> the last verse in this passage, Ephesians 4.32, says, Be kind, be compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. You see, the secret to every relational fixer-upper the secret to relationships that last the long haul is simply to forgive. You don't wait for them to ask for forgiveness. You give forgiveness whether they ask for it or not because it's the right thing to do. You say, why in the world would I ever do that? Friends, it's because that's what God has done for you. God forgives us when we don't deserve it. Jesus, as I said, died on the cross Romans 5, 8, while we were still in our sins, we are forgiven because of him. If anybody had a right to not forgive, if anybody had a reason to be bitter, to be angry, if anybody had a reason to store up resentment, it was Jesus. Abused, betrayed, lied, mocked, spit on, hit, abandoned, crucified, and yet in Luke 23, 34, Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. I need forgiveness in relationships. You need forgiveness in relationships. And we ought to be the first ones to extend it. Jesus doesn't demand the opportunity to get even. He freely dispenses freedom. I've given you there in your outline a, a quote that I've always loved from the old preacher, Henry Ward Beecher. For those who say I can forgive, but I can't forget, it's another way of saying I will not forgive. But forgiveness ought to be like a canceled note, torn in two, burned up, so that it can never be shown against one. I'm going to ask this morning if you would stand for me, if you would, and bow your heads. Every eye closed, every head bowed. And I hope, I hope you'll do this rather than head for the door in a minute or two because I think this is an important time. 
This is a time to quiet ourselves before God. And I feel like, first of all, today, God needs to bring healing to some spirits and hearts that have just been demolished in this congregation. I think God wants to bring healing to some that have been devastated by people's words. And maybe, maybe they're words that you heard way back when you were a little child. But today, you need to open your soul and let God begin that healing process. Maybe it would be helpful for you if you just kind of opened your hands before you as a sign to God that, God, I'm, I'm, I'm letting go of this. I, I want my hands empty to receive the life, the blessing that you have for me. But I'm going to invite you to pray with me. Heavenly Father, for every person here that has just been decimated by the words of their boss, by a teacher or a coach, a dad or a mom, by a husband or wife or in-law. Father, I ask that you begin a healing in their heart right now. Lord, I thank you that they're here. I thank you that they came not by accident, but because your spirit compelled them to get up and to come today. And I know that as they come, your word says, you will no wise cast them out. Father, you stand with open arms, ready to receive them and share with them for many times what they've never experienced, even a shadow of in a person on this earth. The fact that they are greatly loved, the fact that their life has a value beyond measure because you paid the greatest price so that they might know the greatest love, the greatest relationship. Father, I ask that you do the great job of renovation for the walls that are there that need to just be knocked down, for the wiring that just needs to be redone, for the, the doorways that need to be moved or removed. We want to have this open floor plan between you and us. So Father, for whatever we put between us by our sin or we've allowed to be put there by Satan or by others in this world, Lord, we're listening. We're waiting for your sledgehammer just to knock it down. Father, I ask for some this morning, they hear that stone grating against stone that was rolled away from your tomb that proved you were exactly who you claimed to be, that the power that called you forth of the resurrection can bring life back to them, a life they've never known because, Father, you purchased our forgiveness. You purchased a life of abundance for us. You purchased an eternity with you for us. And maybe they're ready to accept you as their Lord and Savior. But Father, we want to be a people that carry about us the fragrance of the relationship we have with you. Though whether it's with our children, our spouses, grandparents, or work, we love because you first loved us. We listen because you first listened to us. We affirm because, Father, you speak the truth and affirm us. Because you can purge us of all those words that we never should have said. And Father, forgive us. We need you. So come, in Jesus' name, amen.